everybody. Thanks for joining us again this month. Welcome to the Second Drafts podcast. My name is Craig Dunham, and if you were listening, uh, you are a paid subscriber, or you had somebody pay for you to subscribe, or you're hacking this podcast, and I want to know how you do it, because that's illegal. Um, Not really, but we're going to be talking, as I do every month, I talk with friends of mine who have experience, expertise, in a particular area, or they're just playing a lot of fun. And um, our guest today is all three of those. We go about an hour long, give or take, and uh, we just talk about what what comes up as we're uh, as as we think about it. And one thing that uh, if there's anything that everyone has an opinion on, it's education. And uh, the question, of course, becomes how informed are those opinions? What help, what hope do they hold for real solutions for the world? And so it's mid-April with schools, particularly independent schools, already months into their admission processes for next year. Um, it's, it's, a good, it's a good time for us to sit down and, um, and discuss what we think about what's going on all over the country in terms of K-12 education. And what we're going to talk about here is why school choice may be a solution to much of what ails us. And so I've, uh, as many of you know, I've been involved, had been involved in education for, uh, for many years. And, um, but I'm bringing in a ringer today. Um, Peter Stewart is senior vice president of school development for Stride Learning and works with parents, teachers, community groups, school districts, school boards, departments of education, policymakers across the U.S. and internationally to start new high-tech schools that use the Stride Academic Program. In the past seven years, Peter has helped develop large-scale public e-learning programs in 16 states that currently serve over 100,000 courses annually. Prior to joining Stride in 2000, Peter was a head of school, a teacher, a school principal, and a curriculum director with 10 years experience working in urban, rural, and international schools. He holds a BA in English from Williams College and an MA from Columbia University Teachers College. In other words, if if there's education in, in, in the discussion, Peter has probably done it, touched it, affected it, whatever. Um, that's why I've asked him to be on the podcast today. He is married to Chris. They have two boys. They recently bought and now run Hard Scrabble Ranch, which is a guest ranch 30 minutes northeast of Bozeman that families can rent for getaways, weddings, family reunions, and just time away in the wilderness. It's a great place. I've been out there. And um, for those of you uh, here in Bozeman or thinking about coming to Montana, uh, look up hardscrabbleranch.com and I uh, want to make sure that to get that plug in because it's a great place. And we'll talk a little bit about what you're doing out there. But right. Peter, with that for an introduction. That was lovely. Thank that, you. That was lovely. Thank you. Thanks for being here. Um, this is pretty exciting because you've, uh, I've always learned a lot from you when we get together, of course, when we talk education and you just bring such a unique perspective because of everywhere you've been, everything you've done, and um, maybe just give us a little bit of a, a rundown of, of where you're coming from, who you are, grew sure. up on the East Coast, Did. help our, our listeners get to know you a little bit. Sure. I've been a school teacher since I graduated from college. I got a job 
um, teaching overseas in Switzerland my first two years. Um, and I beat out a much more qualified uh, candidate. Uh, she's now like uh, a, a poet laureate in Ohio or somewhere. And she was a much better student, but she couldn't coach rugby. And they needed an English teacher who could coach rugby. So I got the job. Um, and I've been a teacher and educator uh, ever since. Um, in 2000, I joined uh, the company called K-12 back then. Um, and I joined for what I thought would be like a one or a two year uh, detour to learn more about technology and how it was impacting education. And I ended up in the same job I'm in today, um, where I get to go out and start new schools and learn that I loved it. Um, it changes every year. Every year I'm working in different states, coming up with new models. Um, and so my attention span is not great. Um, <laughs> but I've been doing the same thing for 20 years because they, it allows me to change every yeah. year. We're trying new things all the time. Um, we've started schools. Uh, I've helped start schools in about 35 states um, since 2000. And uh, since COVID, I think we're serving about 200,000 full-time students uh, every day. Um, and um, I do more, I guess, more wholesale than retail. Um, <laughs> I'm starting the schools, but I don't get to run them. Right. Uh, but I do go to the graduations. Okay. And the graduations are just amazing because the kids who go to the kind of schools we start are usually, uh, there's some reason that schooling isn't working for them. Mm -hmm. um, and so when you go there, it's a... Uh, kind of a wonderful island of misfit toys and the kids love each other and they love the school they had and you hear the stories of how their life changed because they got a new kind of a model that fits them well um, and that keeps me and keeps all the people on my team pretty driven to to do more every year now when when you talk about these schools what what's some of the variety involved uh, sure we just give us a smattering of what kinds of schools you're talking about here? It really is the gamut. I mean, on the spectrum, we help, uh, you know, Paul Vallis was starting brand new schools in Philadelphia um, in the early 2000s, and he just didn't want to move an old school that had not been very successful to a new building and not change things. So we were brought in to help change the science program and the math program. Um, so we do traditional schools. We do blended schools. Uh, Arnie Duncan, who was Secretary of Education, mm -hmm under Obama, um, when he was CEO of uh, Chicago Public Schools, um, we were able to work with him to start uh, a school that was for dropouts. Um, mostly it was um, teen parents. They had dropped out of school, gotten pregnant, gotten someone pregnant, had a child, uh, and the kids realized that life was not kind um, to a 19-year-old who didn't have a high school degree, who couldn't find a way to support themselves, their family, and so they wanted a way back in. And so that was a blended school. Um, and we housed it on a community college uh, campus. So the kids were there half a day, either a morning session or an afternoon session or an evening session. Um, and we would work to provide social services for them there. Um, but what really happened is they realized that they could do it and they were on a college campus and so no one knew that they were high school dropouts. They looked like just the other kids sure. around them. They fit in. And so it was for them, it was uh, an amazing opportunity for them to change their, their life trajectory. And then we do full-time online schools. Um, we do them as private schools, public schools, some of them have a very uh, specific focus. Some are just more general education. Mm -hmm. Did you, I mean, you went to Columbia Teacher School. Did, did what you learned there apply to what no. you're doing? No, not at all. <laughs> not at all. No, I think um, my first teaching job in Switzerland, um, uh, after the first year, the school wanted to start a uh, sixth grade. It was a seven through 12 school, and they wanted to have a sixth grade. And I was just kind of dumb enough to say, sure, I can try and do that for you. Uh, and it was successful. Um, and then, um, you know, I got a job teaching uh, at an Episcopalian school in New York City. Um, and uh, 
basically the woman who was hired to be the assistant head of school um, interviewed me and offered me the job. And the guy who was supposed to be the, the, the head of the school, um, when his wife saw the neighborhood in New York City, she said, no way. They were from Florida. And they left. And so she was now the principal and she needed a, um, a middle school principal. So I became a principal with really no background in it um, and kind of faked my way through. And, you know, it was one of those deals where they say, well, you get to teach all the courses you were going to teach and you get to and be the principal and you have no more money. So it was perfect. Right. No, I was, you know, 24 years old or 25. It was great. <laughs> and, but you've also done, I mean, in terms of uh, public schools or inner city schools, you've, you've done private schools, independent mm-hmm. schools. What were those, what were your experiences like with that? You know, all of it's been great. I've, I was a curriculum director, a, um, just a regular English and history teacher. Um, I've had to teach middle school science before with no real background in it. And you just you do the best you can. And whenever you teach a new subject, it's really hard. And the first couple of years are really hard. Right. But after a while, you, it's fun to do something different, to mix it up. Um, I've always, you know, I've, every teaching job I've had, I've loved. Um, and I've had the same role uh, with K-12 Stride now for 20-something years. And it's different every year, uh, and it still continues to be fun. It feeds me. Mm-hmm. What do you see, I mean, as we talk about what you're doing and what K-12 and Stride seems to really be meeting a need and a niche for, why is that? What is going on in our education system? What What are parents seeing? What are... Mm-hmm. Um, what are you, what are your observations? Because you're much more broad on this in terms of, of being everywhere in lots of different states. You know what's going on just about every state because of the work that you're doing with Stride. What are you seeing? I mean, how is it, what's going on in the world of education? It, I mean, in some ways, you know, COVID has created this, these kind of like natural experiments that you know economists look for, um, where people <laughs> right. are forced into a situation. You see what what comes out. Um, you know, a lot of schools were unprepared because they they truly didn't have the resources. They didn't have the training. They didn't have the curriculum to teach online. So to make that shift back in, you know, March two years ago was very difficult for them. I think parents, by and large, gave people the benefit of the doubt. They Definitely. said, look, Definitely. you know, you weren't ready for this. But the next year, was, was parents were a little less mm-hmm. forgiving because they still wanted their kid to have a good experience. And in many cases, children did not. Mm-hmm. Um, a lot of schools remained online or they, were, they, they had kids come in, but only partially. Um, and the teachers weren't ready for that. And I think what's happened is um, parents in general have had a sense like, I need a school that works for my child. And, and what you've been offering in many cases doesn't work for them. I think some families, many families had a very bad experience with online learning, mm-hmm. um, but some didn't. Um, and, and if you were already enrolled in one of our schools, our schools continued without missing a beat because many of them are set up to do that. Mm-hmm. Uh, our teachers are trained that way. Um, you know, we've done a lot of research on what makes an effective teacher in an online environment. So our schools continued um, kind of uninterrupted. Um, that drew double the number of students to us. Mm. So we went from serving 100,000 kids to 200,000 kids almost overnight. Wow. And we could scale because it's it's software and teacher training, mm-hmm. um, um, but it's not buildings. We don't have to you know double our capacity to, to, to seat children. Um, what I see in parents now is a sense of they're looking for more of an individual model for their child or for their children. And so a lot of the families who come to us the local school around the corner is a great fit for their eldest. Mm-hmm. Their middle child mm-hmm. goes to a 
private religious school and their youngest child is with us in a, in a traditional public online school. Um, and they are really thinking, what's the best fit for my child? And that's new. Mm-hmm. Um, that's not something that people have thought about uh, in the 20 years that I've been doing kind of school choice things. It's been the goal, but it hasn't really happened. And I think that COVID absolutely accelerated all of that. Yeah, I think it definitely, I think, showed the the backside, uh, I suppose, of the idea of the one size fits all of the, you know, the, the national program of education of how everyone is going to have the exact same thing and as a result, the exact same outcome. It just seems like the, the assumption there has been turned on its head because of what COVID did, certainly. But I think then parents beginning to wake up a little bit to perhaps their responsibility in their child's education rather than just dropping them off at a school building or even plopping them online, I think a lot of parents kind of came more to a realization of, I've got to be a little more engaged Absolutely. in what's really going on. And, and, and some of them didn't like what they saw. Yeah. They didn't like to seeing, not just kind of like politically, but I think a lot of them saw like, there's a lot of wasted time yeah. in a lot of classrooms. Um, and I think in, you know, in some of these Zoom classrooms, the teachers had no idea how to structure uh, their lessons. Um, and so they were basically just running a, a Zoom class as if it was like a lecture hall, mm-hmm. which will put anybody to sleep. I mean, it's just stultifying. It's awful. Um, and so I think a lot of families realize, like, this is not what I was – this is not the best use of time for my child and how my child learns best. Mm-hmm. And so they're looking for other options. You're seeing school districts trying to start new types of programs that will accommodate. There are a lot of school districts that now say they're down 10%. Mm-hmm. And so – um, you know, schools aren't businesses, but when you're down 10%, I mean, you're down 10% of the funding that you normally get. And so you have to start cutting things. Mm-hmm. And so districts are trying to figure out and be more customer centric on how do I bring these people back? What will it take? Mm-hmm. Um, and that's something that probably wouldn't have happened without COVID. Right. Because the, I mean, it has been so ingrained in our, our culture, especially in the last 50 years, but even before that, in the sense of you know compulsory education, this is just what you're supposed to do. You, as as a as a family with children, you send your kids to school. The government provides this, and it, it has taken something as dramatic as COVID, I think, to to be able to kind of wedge in there a little bit for people to see it doesn't have to be that way and in many ways in our american system it wasn't that way yeah um talk a little bit about that as you as you see you know i've there there was this uh and i mentioned it to you uh, last week a guy named brian Matson, who is the senior scholar of public theology for the center for cultural leadership and he's actually here in in montana in Billings, he wrote this uh, piece on his Substack newsletter, which he calls the Square Inch, uh, which plays off of Abraham Kuyper, if you're familiar with him. But he wrote an article called On the Education Monopoly. And um, I just want to read a little bit of this just to give you something to respond to, Peter, because I, I, I love your thoughts here. Um, He's talking about it in the context of of cultural battles, and he says, there will be no ultimate resolution on the far end of this particular cultural battle because at the end of the day, none of it addresses a root structural issue. 
Arguing over whether to use gauze or a band-aid is of little use when the diagnosis is stage 4 cancer. That is not to say that proximate battles are unnecessary. Cancer patients need palliative care and sometimes even a band-aid. But there is, to abruptly switch metaphors, a giant elephant in the room where we are arguing over the seating arrangements, not a cute little circus elephant. Rather, think of the kind featured in the Battle of Pelennor Fields in The Return of the King. What is the elephant nobody wants to talk about? And then he says the elephant is public education. And he goes on to say, because we never, ever, ever question the propriety and or legitimacy of the public school system itself, we are forced to engage in a giant wrestling match over who gets to be the new philosopher king. We play king of the hill with the makeup of our school boards, and nobody ever wonders whether we ought to have a public school board at all. Let me put it simply, if it were not for the state monopoly on education, we would not be having these power struggles over curriculum. At least we wouldn't at this kind of societal and cultural level. What are your thoughts? You know, I think that if, if you look at the, in the country, there's only a few states right now that have thought about education funding as money available for the education of a child and not for kind of the system as a whole. Right. And that's a fundamental change. Yes. And so if you look, you know, over the last, you know, decade, Indiana, Florida, Arizona have been kind of the leaders in the school choice movement where they basically say that there's enough money for a child's education. In some cases, it's mean tested based on family income. In some cases, it's not. Um, where the money is available to the parent and they can use it how they want. Mm-hmm. Um in the last two years, West Virginia, you know, not, not necessarily a state known for kind of like leadership on education, they've jumped to the front of the pack. Hmm. Um, Senator Patricia Rucker there is a total hero, and she she went on and challenged the system, and and, and her colleagues agreed that they have now created a system in West Virginia where every fa- every child is available. What's available to them is a charter school option, the local public school option. Or a seven thousand dollar voucher, hmm. uh, which in West Virginia covers almost the full tuition of, of most private schools, right. and so they've moved to a place where they're saying we're going to leave it up to the parent to decide what's the right fit for the child. And I think that in those cases, you're going to get away from a lot of these cultural battles that are happening at school boards, because families will say, "Well, this isn't the right fit for me. Hmm. I'm going to take my child and, and put them here." And religious schools, you know, because of the court cases that have happened in the last two years at the Supreme Court. Um, and there's one, I think, still pending uh, that we'll get a decision in June, the, the main case. Um, they're basically saying that if you offer a, a publicly funded private school option, a religious school has to be one of those options. Yes. Whether that's Muslim, Jewish, Christian, Catholic, whatever it might be. Um, and I do believe that that's going to put the power into parental hands to, to decide what's the best fit for my child. Because the, the money is not for the system. Right. The money is for the child. But, um, but why is it such a fight? Like why? Why? I mean, I, I have I have my own thoughts on it. I know you do too. But wh- why is is it just so that we preserve the system? Oh, you mean the school choice fight or, or yeah. the moral fights? The, well, both. I mean, st- well, take school st- choice fights. Take, I mean, it's, it's, you know, it's a zero sum game. If you're the if you're the monopoly, right? It's a zero sum game, and it is, anybody who gets some of your power then you know it's a diminution of, of what you have but, um, but Corey DeAngelis who is pretty big oh sure uh, I follow him on Twitter and he's he's one of the leading school choice voices he says that that's not the case that that money is not going to the school uh, or the government is not the government school is not going to lose money 
from the school because the expenses that were associated with the child are not there either. That's true at a large scale. It's not, you know, I mean, sure. it's at a large scale that, that might be true. Um, but that also means at a large scale that you're shutting down schools. Yeah. Right. And so that's a tough thing for any community to do. Sure. Um, you know, I, I think, though, that, you know, New Hampshire has taken great steps in, the, in, in this direction. Um, and I think you're going to see a lot more of it. Um, and I think that there was probably the school choice movement was probably the charter movement is a part of that, mm-hmm. of school choice. Um, it hasn't really grown a whole lot in the last decade. Right. I think that you're going to see these um, um, educational savings accounts, mm-hmm. vouchers, any kind of you know public scholarships. They're going to grow and they're going to grow quickly. Um, um, if, if the political winds continue to blow the way that it seems they're blowing. Mm-hmm. Well, I remember you told me that probably Florida is, has been the most aggressive in providing those kinds of, of accounts and f- sor- f- funding sources for people w- with regard to what they wanted to, to, to use it for with their kids. So, so after the 2018 election, and, and uh, Governor DeSantis barely won, yeah. he beat Andrew Gillum, who was, you know— uh, uh, rising star in the Democratic Party. He was the mayor of Tallahassee, African-American guy, you know, beloved. And it was a really, really tight race. After the race, um, reporters, political analysts went and they really went, you know, district by district looking at who voted. And they found 80,000 African-American women who voted for the Democrat for U.S. Senator, a white guy, but voted against Andrew Gillum, an African-American, to vote for Ron DeSantis, who was a Trump Republican. Mm-hmm. And they did it for one reason, because their kids went to a private school and got a scholarship or went to a local charter school. Mm-hmm. And Gillum and his platform was not supportive of that. Yeah. That that's a big deal. Mm-hmm. And, and parents obviously care mostly about, you know, what's best for their kids. And I think that you're seeing the Republican Party wake up to that. Mm-hmm. Um, not as quickly as you'd expect, but they're waking up to it. <laughs> uh, Republicans are always a little slow. <laughs> but, but Democrats, too. I mean, I think about what happened in Virginia with um, Terry, what was Terry his? McAuliffe yeah, and McAuliffe. Glenn Youngkin. Right. And it seemed like McAuliffe, the whole concept of, of education, like for him, it, it was like he was completely deaf on that too. And I think it was. I mean, and it's hard. I mean, he, he sent his kids to private school. Right. And so like he believes in school choice. Right. If you could write the check for it. Um, but, you know, I mean, in... in, in, in to a great extent, I mean, he was well funded right. um, by donations from you know from the teachers unions and others who support that, and so hard to go against what you know what gets you there. Hmm. Um, but it, but it, it really you know there were a few moments that that showed a kind of tone deafness to where parents were, and yes. a lot of people attributed that to CRT, and that could be for hmm. some certainly. I actually think it was all about the school closures. Yes, you know, um, I think there were a lot of families who said like this was not okay hmm. that that. You know, we're a, if it was a two-parent family and one of them had to kind of give up their job right. um, to be able to work with the kids, um, that's a big deal. Mm-hmm. And I think that, that people underestimate the impact on that, um, and that's not a party issue. Mm-hmm. But, but it is an issue in, in the sense that, again, our system is kind of built around this idea of Okay, we're gonna have two parents working, and then you're gonna you're gonna drop the kids off at mm-hmm. school. Where even 
I mean, when I was a kid, when you and I were younger, um, you know, back when the Dead Sea was just sick, um, the, you could you you could see people who who had more of a one income job. Maybe sure. the you know uh, one of the spouses was at home, um, but it, it seems like there hasn't been much adaptation. Or maybe maybe the school is the adaptation in that it, the school has it's become custodial. everything. Yeah. In the sense that the schools are feeding kids, you know, breakfast and lunch, weekends. It's, it seems like there's just a huge amount of extra stuff put on the school system. But I think some of it has also been created because if, if, if students and families are so tied to their government school, that's a point of control. Sure. I mean, if, if, if it's... Set up that way, kind of like cynically. Yeah, like which master is, plan. I mean, which you know me is completely yeah. where I'm coming from. Yeah, yeah. No, that's, <laughs> I mean, that's, that's very possible. You know, but the reality is, as you said, though, is like if both families have to work, they don't have a choice in in, in what they do with their children. Right. Um, what about when it's a single parent family? Mm-hmm. But there you have, you know, and so, um, you know, I think the schools have responded. In many cases, schools have responded heroically to try and broaden what they can do to have year long schooling, to have after school programs, to have you know, obviously meals in the schools to have summer school programs that can help kids to try and thank them. You know, you have to do all the college counseling, which in a lot of families, the family did a good chunk of that. Mm-hmm. Um, but if you're a first generation family of thinking about college, you don't have anybody who's been through the process before. And so the schools have to expand to, to do some of those things. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, there's plenty of families now who say, like, I'd rather give up. Um, let's say that let's say it was, you know, one and a half incomes. They'll give up that half an income. Uh, and they can't take the vacation they have to have, but now mom can stay home and, and work with the kids either in a homeschooling, in a pod model, in, right. a, in an online school. Um, and, you know, the homeschooling numbers are way up in the country right now. And I don't think they're going to go back. Hmm. Well, that was one question I was going to ask you is, do you think that independent education, whether it be private school, whether it be homeschooling, those kinds of models, did COVID... I mean, a lot of a lot of people made the decision because of COVID. Some made the decision simply because they didn't sure. want their kid wearing a mask. Right. Right. They they made a decision whether it was homeschooling, whether it was independent school or you know private education. Do you think that there's a strong enough because because we've done both of those. I mean, we've done everything. We've we've homeschooled. We've done blended mm-hmm. school. We've done independent school. Um, do you think that that they're going to last? Yes. Why? Um, I think that they look at the, if they made the decision, they looked at their school and they decided this is not the right fit for us. And if, and if it was really temporary, they're back this year. Mm-hmm. They're probably already back. Um, I think you're going to see, you know, a lot of people have just moved. Yeah. Right? And they, they're, they're school, they're, their modality of school choices, they moved to another community where they could get, you know, one of the things that happened after Katrina um, Many of the families went to Houston because they had to. Mm-hmm. They actually saw that the Houston public school system was a lot better than what they were used to in New Orleans, and they never came back. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think you're going to see some of that. Mm-hmm. Go back to the funding a little bit, because I think this is this is always what it comes down to, people. You were talking about um, Terry. Well, why can't I remember? McAuliffe. McAuliffe. Yeah. Uh, you know, he, he's he's all for public or private education, if you can write the check, right. to use your phrase. Um, but this is what it always, it always seems to, to come down to. And let me read a little bit more from, from Madsen's article. Cause he, he has something on this. I think is interesting. 
Um, and he's he's advocating, I think what you're advocating, what I'm ad- advocating for is that the funding goes to the children, mm-hmm. not the system. So he says, this is why the far better model is to tie funding to actual children and the money follows the child wherever they go. Think of it. In my home state, which is Montana, you and mm-hmm. you and I are here, the government, local, state, federal, is paying, as best as I can tell from state and federal reports, and I can confirm this myself because I've studied this, $14,546 to educate one child every year. Very little of which goes to actual teachers, I might add. They ask for millions more from taxpayers every single year by way of mill levies, which they invariably advertise as for the children. They get the money, which then goes to pay salaries for executives, administrative assistants, undersecretaries, and assistants to the undersecretaries. He's exaggerating, but I think you get the drift. Um, Actual teachers have to buy their own classroom supplies year after year after year, mill levy after mill levy after mill levy. And then he says this. He says, you do the math. A class of 25 students is bringing a single classroom three hundred sixty three thousand six hundred fifty dollars per year the teacher's salary the median is fifty five thousand which my wife would jump over the moon for and then he he closes and says bureaucracy bureaucracy at its finest and as i mean that just makes me sick to think about all of that money and people talk and and you've seen this the charts of just People talk about how the public schools are not well-funded and there hasn't right. been funding. That hasn't been the case. If you look at, I mean, the actual funding from 40 years ago, it's constantly increased. Well, I'll, I'll bet you that $14,000 does not include capital dollars. It's usually just the operational budget. Right, this is the so operation. Not, there's usually another $3,000 there on transportation, um, buildings, debt service, pensions, things like that. Right. Um, yeah, we do not have an, well, I shouldn't say this. In general, we don't have an underfunded system. Um, and that parents are waking up and saying, well, why can't I use part of that right. to educate my child the way that I think is best for him or her? Mm-hmm. Um, and I think you're going to get that. I mean, you're going to get it first in red states, um, but I think you're going to see it in purple states as well. Mm. And I think that once you know families get that, it's going to be hard to take it away. Mm-hmm. I mean, it, it does put a lot of kind of, you know, if you think just in terms of you know the two-party system, you know, what happens when, if you see right now, you see, you know, um, lots of reports of, or actually after the McAuliffe-Yunkin election, there's a Democrat, Roy Texera, who went in and looked at, and he's a, he's a Democrat who's looked at, you know, this issue for 20 years, well-regarded, and he went in and he went, you know, precinct by precinct. Mm-hmm. And he said that, you know, what you end up seeing is that a lot of Latino voters switched over, mm-hmm. um, and they did it towards the end of the election. And he said that the more Latino the precinct, the more people moved, which to him indicated it became socially acceptable, mm. even to the point where people would put a Yunkin sign on their front yard, which was unthinkable right. you know, a few months earlier. Absolutely. If that's happening, and because of that, you get you know, school choice in places, and a Latino family gets to send their child to the local Catholic school, to the local Christian school, to whatever they're looking for, how are you going to take that away? Mm. Who's going to stand up and say, I want to take that away from you? I mean, you know, DeSantis learned that lesson in 2018. Um, I think it's a very powerful argument for empowering parents. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that, you know, the, the ultimate beneficiary is always the children. Mm-hmm. Um, there are people who, people that I'm related to, who <laughs> just basically say, well, these families, they're not capable of making yeah, that decision. They don't know what they're doing. I just want right? to pull my hair out. I mean, mm-hmm. I think that families know what's best for them and for their kids. 
or, you know, if someone's drug addicted, perhaps there's extreme you know, sure. examples. But in general, um, I trust parents to make good decisions for their kids. Right. Um, and I think that's going to be the huge outcome, at least in the space that I work in education, of COVID, is that it will have shifted things in ways that were unthinkable it, incrementally. You wouldn't yeah. get there incrementally. You needed to have this big shift, and I think it's happening. Hmm. What do you see... Your your business that, that you're a part of basically doubled yep. in size in two years. In two years, hundred thousand to two hundred thousand students. Has there been a change or a difference in what you've heard parents wanting or asking or? Not really. Um, you know, in the beginning, it was just shelter from the storm. Right. right. You know, something wasn't going well. But those who stay, and some of them wanted to go back. That, that, mm-hmm. That's all they wanted was a, a way station. But those who are staying, um, you know, th- th- what they just say is what every parent says. This works for my child. Right. Um, and then that's what we have to do is, is come up with lots of different models that, for kids. And, you know, hopefully they're all trying for real academic um, advancement and real you know, emotional advancement of, of a child because that's what it takes to be successful. Right. Um, but having a bunch of different flavors is probably a good idea. And again, I come back to what's the reason that people are so against that? It seems like, so for instance, if you're, yeah. if you're coming from a blue state or, right. you know, someone who's coming from a perspective of, you know, we have to fund the public schools, their perspective is, 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 inevitably that you know this this is a bad idea leave it to the experts this is you know the teachers unions that that's their cry we are the educators for your child um but i I just can't figure out why people don't want to don't want to give that option of i mean we're not talking about i'm I'm not even right now say say for instance i'm not even talking about shutting down the public schools but just to be able to in, in a pluralistic society, to have a true pluralism of educational options. Yeah, I think once something's been framed effectively, it's hard to break out of it. Yeah, it really is. And so, you know, I'll talk to people who disagree with me on this topic, and I'll say, "Well, how do you feel about Head Start? They love Head Start." Hmm. I said, "Well, how do you feel about the GI Bill? They love the GI Bill. What about Pell Grants? I love Pell Grants." I'll say, "But how do you feel about school vouchers?" And like they're from the devil, right? <laughs> I'm saying so. So your four vouchers, government vouchers, for for everything three else. and four and five year olds, and you're for it for adults coming out of the military, and you're for it for those going to college. But somehow between the ages of five and eighteen, it's immoral. Right. And, and that, honestly, the, most people will look at me and say, "I've never thought of it like that," right. because it hasn't been framed for them like that, and they just believe that it is a zero sum game. And if somehow a private school wins, then the public school has to lose. And I don't buy that. Right. I don't buy that either. I, and I think I think part of it goes back to that the, the myth has always been that the public school is wonderfully neutral in what it's presenting, whereas we can't take public funds to fund anything else that might have a particular bias, whether it be religious, whether it be right. something else. But there's no such thing as a as a neutral education. Right. And so, you know, if you look at, um, you know, the, the court cases that are, have been before the Supreme Court, um, the Espinoza case, which is actually here in, in right, Montana, Montana sure. and, now, and now the case that's, you know, from Maine, I guess it'll be decided in June. Um, 
you know, they go back to Senator Blaine and the Blaine Amendments, sure. which are in like 30-something states. 35, and, I think. Right? And then it was all basically about, you know, what it was was basically making sure that my ancestors, I'm Roman Catholic. Right. right? It they was were, an anti-Catholic they were, bill. They were, you know, papist, you know, uh, degenerates. And, and, and what they basically said is, you know, public schools were religious, absolutely religious in America in 1850s and before. Absolutely. But they were the dominant religion. The dominant religion in the Northeast was Episcopalianism. And in the South, you had, you know, Baptist schools and Presbyterian schools. And in the Midwest, you had Lutheran schools. Um, but they were religious. And what they basically said to to the Catholics was you had a choice, take a choice between the schools you're paying for now, but people also paid for their public schools back then. They weren't free. Um, or you can compete with free. Or you can come over here for free. And that's what did it. I mean, that's what... The Catholic schools were doing fine, but they continually shrunk over time. But the basic idea was we'll give you a free education if you come for our dominant religious view or moral view or ethical view or whatever you want to frame it as. Well, I would, so they've I, always been that way. Right. And, but I would, I mean, I think you got it right the first time. It, it is a religious view that is put forward, I mean, in a, a secular humanist sure. perspective. Sure. Now, again, people are going to say, oh, no, Craig, you're making too much of this because. This is this is the public school. This is just neutral. They don't believe anything. That's not true. Right. I mean, that is just not reality. And I think that's a, it's that's, a. I mean, it's a, certainly a worldview. It's a worldview. Yeah, yeah. And but I would also argue it's a worldview that is often presented and pursued religiously. Oh yeah, with fanaticism. Yeah. <laughs> oh, absolutely. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. But. It, um, let me read you another thing from Madsen's sure. article, just because. I, I almost thought about contacting him to see if he wanted to sit in with the three of us, but yeah. um, but maybe then, next time. Yeah, maybe next time we'll do a follow up. Um, his his perspective. He goes back and looks at a reformed um, hero to many of us, Abraham Kuyper, and he says, "Well, over a century ago, Abraham Kuyper and his anti-revolutionary party in Holland faced a similar issue with regard to education." In a diverse Dutch society, obviously ours is exponentially more diverse, but how best to facilitate the education of children? Who would be in charge? Who decides what to teach? I mean, these are the same questions that we're wrestling over and arguing over now. Um, He goes on, he says, the Dutch Calvinists wouldn't entrust their kids to the secular liberals, and the secular liberals weren't going to send their kids to the Catholic schools, and so on and so forth. So what was Kuiper's idea? Well, here's what Mattson says it was. Rather than forcibly dissolving all these distinctive and deeply held convictions in a bath of anodyne uniformity in a state-run, one-size-fits-all school system, a recipe for the very conflagration of passions we are seeing at this very moment, every community could set up whatever schools they wanted and they would equally receive government funds. Now, again, Kuiper's coming from the perspective that the funding is going to the system, systems plural, rather than just one system. Um, This accomplished a few important things for Kuiper. It recognized the reality of pluralism, that the state is unable to force everybody to see eye to eye, and it shouldn't be able to force everybody to see eye to eye. That is, it preserves the liberty of conscience for parents, which is what we were talking about, and communities to educate their kids according to their deeply held convictions and, I think you and I would argue, their own knowledge of their kids. 
It keeps the state out of the business of the family and church, as he saw things. He was in favor of a limited government that did not impose a national church or play favorites, but rather established a level playing field for society to work out its own disagreements in the public square by way of persuasion, not coercion. I mean, that's, that's education in America today in Indiana, Arizona, Florida, West Virginia, New Hampshire. Okay. That's what they're doing. So we're, we're making progress that's toward it. that. And that's what they're, they're basically saying is we believe in this kind of pluralist approach. And what they really say is we're trusting the parents to make the right choice for their child. Mm-hmm. And we think that will be good for society. Right. Right. These are tax dollars. We have to shepherd them well. And we think that will be good for our society if the parents get to choose where their kids go to school. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, the argument against that is you're going to end up with. Um, you know, a totally diffracted society that isn't co- coherent and isn't cohesive, but we don't have that right now. Yeah, aren't we there? I, mean, I, think, I think we've got that. And so um, I think you're going to see more states ask for that. And I don't think that's a partisan issue. I think it was. Mm-hmm. But I think enough parents now, um, you know, if you, you there's enough articles that I read. Uh, there was one in the New York Times a while back where it was a, a family from Maplewood, New Jersey. It was a very progressive community in New Jersey. And it was two moms. They were a lesbian couple. They had previously lived in Brooklyn. They said, you know, their bona fides of being a progressive was was really, really high. world class. Yeah. And they were furious. They were furious that their school was closed and the local school wasn't, the charter school wasn't. And, the, and they just said, like, this is not okay anymore. And so I don't know how long that will last, but that's out there right now. Um, and I think it's going to drive towards more choices for parents and ultimately, you know, I think that's a good thing. Yeah. I mean, I, we, we use school choice in my family. Mm-hmm. Um, the best fit for our kids, you know, and at some point it might be two different things. Um, but it shouldn't just be for the people who have the ability to write a check. Right. That's what I've always sort of, why I've always been drawn to the school choice movement is that the schools that we set up are predominantly for kids who cannot mm-hmm. pay tuition. Mm-hmm. Um, but just because they live in, you know, I don't say the wrong zip code doesn't mean they shouldn't have good options. Right. And the internet, in many ways, is one of the one of the ways it solves that problem. Absolutely. Well, speaking of problems, what do you think? So, as you as you look at what's going on culturally, you know, let's go beyond education, but culturally, what are the problems that that ail us right now? That school choice, and and by school choice, I I, I mean a simply better education, and, and I would even argue from my classical perspective, a, a moral formation of education, what what kinds of things go away, or maybe not go away, but at least are not so up in our faces that we have to deal with every time because we're just so busy fighting over education and and politics and and all of these kinds of things i mean what are there things that you can think of that you think boy it wouldn't or what have you seen i mean what have what has made a difference in because of what what stride has done i mean what are what are some of the stories that you've seen you talked earlier about kids coming out of more urban you know some of it is is you know if you think about i said before it's hard to break out of a frame that's been set for you right um, if you go to a place like in Indiana, and this doesn't get at the moral issue, but it goes to kind of breaking out of a frame. If you go to a place in Indiana, um, in Jeffersonville, across from uh, from Louisville, Kentucky, um, and you drive around, you'll see school districts creating new schools right on the edge of their area, uh, of their border, with other districts. 
and they're trying to recruit kids from other schools. Mm. And they have gotten into the mode of thinking very quickly that, because they have open enrollment there. A parent gets not just decide, do I want my kid to go to a voucher school, or do I want my kid to go to a, um, to a Christian school, do I want my child to go to a charter school, or the local school. They can also go to the local school which, across the border. And so you'll see them setting up a Montessori school right on the edge where a new development is, is, is being built across the border. Mm-hmm. And so they're being competitive with each other. Mm. You don't see that in most states. Right. And so the educators and the whole system has come to kind of embrace an idea that if we think if what we think is so great, we have to go out and get kids from all around to come to us. And so they're competing with each other. The way that we do in sports, if we took if we took academics one tenth seriously as we take sports, <laughs> right? We'd be in a much better place. And so but that's happening in some of these places. Mm. And that's a huge change in mindset. Um, you know, if you go to Washington State, they have a program there called Running Star that nobody thinks is that, I mean, people like it, but they don't think it's such a big deal. Very few states have what they have, where beginning in the eighth grade, children are starting to work towards taking college level courses while they're in high school, particularly this is important in, in lower middle class and poor families, where they're going to end up graduating with an associate's degree. And it's, it's an associate's degree from the local community college, and those credits are transferable to the University of Washington, and everybody just thinks that that's normal. Mm. It's wonderful. It's fantastic. It's game-changing. It alters the lives of so many kids. But most states don't have that. Or if they do, it's pockets. And so you know, I think that some of this competition is really good in, in the sense of trying to get the system to think of itself as serving its customer. Um, and there's just not enough of that. So how do you apply this, say, go back to your days when you were an independent school Mm -hmm. uh, principal? Sure. So what what is, because I dealt with this as well, you know, you, it's this idea of as an independent school, you're most likely you've created a school around something, whether it be a a set of core beliefs, whether they be educational, religious, those kinds of things. Um, how do we how do we help parents, particularly parents who are in or thinking about independent schools? Um, the the danger I think becomes where parents because if there are all these options, which is great, the danger also comes in where the parents can view this as I am the customer, you're you're the vendor, so right. to speak. And are there dangers that come from that? Because you see parents who... If you're a weak school, sure, right? I mean, like, like you know, schools are some schools are either market-driven or mission-driven. And so if you're a market-driven school, you'll find out, oh, well, the families really want us to do this and not that. Mm-hmm. But if you're a mission-driven school, you know, then, like the school that uh, I, I helped to run in, in New York City, um, the school was literally built around the chapel. And when you want to tour the school, you spend a lot of time in the chapel. And if we and if we're if we had a big enough group, we try and get the organ player in there so you could hear the <laughs> organ going. And like we wanted them to know, like this is the center of our school, not just physically, but right. in every way, spiritually, emotionally. Like you know, the kids were there every day for chapel. We did full mass every Friday, mm-hmm. um, and that was the life of the school. And if you didn't like it, go somewhere else. Right. And so strong schools will always be able to, to do that. And obviously, if you have competition, you'll have winners and losers. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, I don't think parents are looking for the simple solution for their child. They're looking for the right solution. And if there's some other options, then, 
you know, again, it might just be that for child A, this very classical, rigorous, but somewhat rigid school is the right fit for this child, but not for the other. Mm-hmm. Um, I, it's an interesting, I think it's, a, it's an interesting conundrum because it, it, it's, it's trying to advocate being able to have multiple schools based around a lot of different things for that sake of fit. And at the same time, the things that the schools need are committed parents. Right. Regardless of, you know, they, they may not, I mean, schools take years and decades to, especially independent schools, to really evolve into what they are, could be. And sure. so that's one of the, I think one of the challenges for independent schools is they don't have, uh, they, they, they may not have those kinds of, of lines for, for that length of time with, with families, but, but it's interesting. Yeah. Um, it's interesting thinking about, um, uh, as you think about where this is all going, um, and, and put your stride hat on and tell us a little bit more, you know, let's give stride an opportunity here. Like what's your best pitch for what you do at stride? What, what do you find yourself having conversations on? It's, it's all over the place. Um, uh, we got to have a conversation with Dan Elsner, who's the president of Marion University. And so when you think about Catholic education in Indiana, you always think of Notre Dame. Mm-hmm. But in the state of Indiana, uh, Marion University punches you know, way above its weight class. I mean, mm-hmm. they're a they're, they're big deal. Um, they have, I think, the only um, uh, teacher's college that specifically says this is how you teach in a Catholic school mm-hmm. uh, with, with, with faith formation. So we had a conversation with him um, uh, well, maybe a year and a half, two years ago. And this year, starting next fall, we're going to launch uh, a program with them where we will do a lot of the nuts and bolts of, of an online school, um, but they're going to do all of the faith parts of it, and it'll be a private school. Um, and we're going to try and get the model right in uh, Indiana this year and then work with parishes all around uh, America. And that'll be, some of that will be my team, but a lot of it will also be their team because they, they, they have that Catholic network. Mm-hmm. Um try and help save a lot of Catholic schools that are closing mm-hmm. because they can't offer um, some of the things that families really want. They want their child to be in a school that has, you know, a great moral center, but they also want to have AP physics or they want to have college level physics or they want to have um, a graphic design option. And it's very hard to do in a small school, mm-hmm. but we're not a small school. Mm-hmm. We will be putting together networks. And so that, that graphic design teacher could be in Montana speaking to students and working with students all over the country at the same time. And so those kind of models are coming together where people are coming to us and they're open to discussion now because they realize that in higher ed, they've had to embrace this. When you have working um, students, you can't just say, well, you need to be at school from eight to three. Mm-hmm. Um, and so now they're now getting it and they're trying to do more. Um, I'm not sure this would have happened as quickly without COVID. Um, but we also talked to districts that are saying to us, we have a lot of families who are not coming back. And they say if they, and they don't want what we're offering because we didn't do it particularly well. Will you come and work with us? And they want to have us help them train their teachers and train their principals to be able to offer a blended model um, that will be appealing to families and the families will come back. Mm -hmm. And so, um, you know, I'm used to spending 33 to 34 weeks a year on an airplane Mm -hmm. before COVID. 
now I can I can do Zoom, and, and before I could always do Zoom with my own team, but districts wouldn't right. engage the idea. It wasn't it wasn't a viable way of communicating. You certainly couldn't get them to do like a real deal. Right. Um, and now you can. Um, and so there is an open-mindedness, and I don't know how long that will last. I think it's going to be a while, where um, districts, school, you know, school superintendents, school boards, um, private school groups are saying, we've got to figure out how to do what we're doing, but in, in, in a better way. Um, and sometimes they come knocking. Now, the teacher in me, maybe in you, the idea, I guess Zoom was necessary because of COVID. Mm-hmm. What are the things that you found that really makes makes a difference between a teacher who is a good teacher on Zoom and a teacher who's on Zoom but not be? Because the implications of what you're talking about really affect teaching. Oh, sure. In in some pretty, hu- pretty huge ways. And, and there's also a part of it in, in me that I... I, I don't know if I can buy in or believe that a Zoom class is going to be what uh, an in-class would be. But that's sure. me. Well, uh, that's, and, and and if, if you want to talk about frameworks, there's right. one for me. If it was a teacher who was lecturing on Zoom to a student, I'd agree with you 100%. Okay. But, but that's not a good model. Right. Um, so um, we about four or five years ago, um, we started working with the folks at Southern New Hampshire University mm-hmm. and their School of Education. Um and they are a leader in online. They have a brick-and-mortar school, mm-hmm. a college, university, that serves two, 3,000 students. And then they have an online school that serves 102,000 right. students. And one of those students is my second daughter. Oh, good. She's yeah. finishing I, up. I, I think SNU does a really great job, and they're incredibly um, uh, innovative. And Paul LeBlanc is one of the great minds in higher education. He's right. the president there. He's amazing. Um, Ray McNulty was the head of the School of Education, and I said, you know, we think, we know what we're doing pretty well, but we haven't tested it enough. Would you come in as people who know the field well, and they brought their researchers in and embedded them with our teachers for the better part of 18 months, and they came away with 64 characteristics of what makes a great online teacher. And so now we train to them. Now, we were training to probably half of them anyway, but half of them are different and new. Um, And so we've built that into what amounts to be, if you go through everything, a master's degree in how to teach online. Um, And so when a skilled teacher in using the right modalities is working with students who are engaged and engagement is hard in a regular right. classroom it's hard in an online classroom um but when that happens it can be just as magical um and you know the key also is the role of a teacher in an elementary school setting sometimes i've heard uh, some of my peers say i feel more like i'm more like a nurse than i am how i used to think of a teacher like as a teacher it was my job to get the information out to the students project it to them if you have a curriculum that is built for an online model, the students engage with the content in a really interesting way. And then as a teacher, you look at the data and I say, ooh, they just took a quiz here and they don't really understand this. And so you, you, you then, your role then is to kind of run an intervention. It could be a one-on-one intervention. It could be a whole group intervention, small group intervention. But that's the same way that a, a nurse or a doctor would look at, you know, your, your vital reports and say, ooh, you know, Peter really needs this. Um, and it can work amazingly. So, so some of what you're saying is there's there's the teacher component. There's also the curriculum component that's tied to that. Right. That, again, in the classroom, you're 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 getting feedback from the student based on the work that they're doing. You're saying that there's an equal 
importance in that curriculum at an internet level so that the teacher who's not in the classroom right. can um, you know the lingo of teaching there is synchronous and asynchronous right. and you know it, you have to have an asynchronous curriculum that the student can engage with on his or her own and that helps them get through it and so they if they come to a they don't know how to factor a polynomial they can click a button there's a whole reteaching video mm-hmm. that will show it um if they don't have that then it really can be awful. Right. And that's a lot of what students experience, unfortunately, in the last two years. Right. But many families did not have that experience, and they realize that this model can work. Right. The, the, the missing piece for me, though, Peter, I guess, is always it's always going to be the, the influence of the teacher from a moral formation perspective. And is that is that just a limit of... No, it's, I mean, I'm, I'm just telling... Like you, you're folk, saying... You're Mar- saying Marion, Marion University okay. is... Deeply committed to its Catholic moral tradition and getting that across, and they really believe that they can serve kids this way. Um, I'm just thinking of, of example of modeling of those kinds of things. You're saying that that you'll build it in. I mean, you're going to build in the same way that at St. Hilda's and St. Hugh's School in New York City on Friday when we had chapel and the chaplain got up and spoke. These schools are going to have that. Okay. Um, so, well, I hope you're right. I hope you're right, and I hope I'm wrong. I mean, I, w- I want to see that because I think... And, and you know where I, I think that this begins to have also, like, when you think about things at scale, um, we are incredibly well-off in this country. As many problems as we have, we are incredibly well-off. Um, I have a colleague, you know, who just got back from Malawi last week, and he just said, like, you know, they can't create a high school educational system to educate the number of kids that they have. And the, the population under 30 is incredible. Um, you mean the age of 30? Under the age of 30, yeah. it's, just, it's just incredible. And, and there aren't enough teachers, there aren't enough construction companies to build the schools. They're going to have to do, if they want to educate people, they're going to have to do it with blended or online as a part of their solution. What's also amazing in some of these places is I had another colleague who was in Ghana, and she called me, and um, she said, guess where I am? I was like, I know you're in Ghana. I assume you're in Accra. And she said, no, no, I'm three hours out of Accra. I can't see a street light. I can't see anything. I have five bars on my cell phone, which we can't get in Montana kind of anywhere, right? <laughs> right? And so in some of these places, the infrastructure exists. Um, we just got Starlink. At, at, we live about 35 minutes outside of well, Bozeman. I was going to ask you. If we just got Starlink, and, and, and it changes everything. I mean, this is Elon Musk's, you know, low-orbiting satellite sure. oh, internet I, provider. I watched, I watched him go over during it the summer. It is amazing. Really? And your, and your download speed is great. But for me, like, I have to be able to communicate with people. Um, so my upload speed is now eight times better than it was. Mm. And, and when you can do that, that really does take away geography. Mm. as a constraint towards access to world-class telemedicine, world-class, you know, uh, psychiatry, world-class education, world-class whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I think you're going to see some of the things that we're playing with now, you're going to see roll out in countries, and they're going to be able to go from, you know, the old kind of saying is no phone to cell phone. They just skip the whole wired part. Hmm. Um, and you're going to see that happen in education. Well, the website is stride. It's stride.com, right? I think we're still www.k12.com. K12.com. I think yep. you've got stride there too. Yeah, but yeah. I'll, put the li- I'll put the link up on the, uh, the page. While, as we wrap up, we got to we got to get a spiel in for hard scrabble. Sure. Tell me about hard scrabble. Give us give us the summary of what in the world sure. you're used to being on a plane for 34 to 35 weeks a year and then you just decide to buy this ranch. Well, and- well, well we what we decided was we wanted to move outside of town and we wanted to 
um, have some land, have some animals. Um, the place that we found that we liked the best was a guest ranch. Um, and as a condition of the purchase, we had to honor um, the previous owner's reservations. Okay. So we bought it. And we moved in in May 1st and May 3rd. We had our first group arrive and we were all of a sudden in the hospitality business and we didn't know what we were doing. But, but in, in, in kind of great credit to the previous owner, she had set it up where it really is the venue and that's it. Mm-hmm. Kind of like a VRBO. Right. Um, it's a little bit more than that, but, um, you know, a, you know, we could sleep 40 people and we went through it and my wife will kill me for saying this, but we loved it. It was hard, uh, but we loved it. It was a lot of fun. Um, I can remember one night, um, Chris was a little overwhelmed by the amount of laundry that had to be done. You know, you had to change 40 beds, you know, and, and do all this. And so she was running it through just the little washer dryer that we had up there to run on a septic system. Like this is, this is no answer. So we went, um, uh, to Livingston and I got, you know, $50 worth of quarters and I went to Albertsons. I got some fried chicken and a couple of beers and we did like 40 loads of laundry together. It was like our only date of the whole summer, <laughs> but I love, it was fun. It was really good. And the people were lovely. The people were gracious. Um, you know, we had a, um, we had the fire chief, um, from San Bernardino and you know, if, I'm kind of a sucker for this when these people put on like the beautiful, you know, he had the blue jacket with all the buttons and it was like, looked like he was in, you know, in the Navy and, and he did the, um, he did the ceremony for his daughter and, and, and his new son-in-law. Uh, and then I got to talk to him afterward and, and he had lost like 10 firefighters in the last couple of years. Mm. And this is the first time that he was able to kind of be with his family. This is pre COVID. And he just said like, this is the, this is the best week that we've had. I've had people say to us, you know, uh, grandparents say, I've never played Monopoly with my kids because our internet before Starlink was terrible. Right. And so you didn't have that as an option and people loved it. So there's a kind of like up there that what we like about it is that people kind of take a step back to a simpler mm-hmm. time and people love it. And during COVID, of course, the first, the, the second year that we ran it, we just had to keep going um, and not just make it our home, but to have the business. Um, we had all these, you know, reservations and we thought it was great. And then of course they all canceled mm-hmm. and we were dead in the water um, but that was not that big a deal. There were bigger problems in the country that then. Um, but then people came together and said, you know what? We as a family are going to come. And they had many family reunions and they had get togethers and they came really spontaneously and it was wonderful. And last year was great. And so we're kind of hooked on it now. How are things looking for this summer? Oh, every weekend has been booked for months. Mm-hmm. I feel if you're, I mean, someone getting married right now, it's really hard in, in this area sure. because I think what happened in education, I think it happened in hospitality, is that people who were close to retirement when COVID hit, they retired. Mm. And so a lot of wedding venues around here closed. Mm. And so now we're one of the few that offers a big outside space. And so we have families who come to us and we're almost booked for the summer of 2023. Okay. I don't know who gets engaged that far in advance, but apparently some people do and they plan it out and we're almost booked there. All right. Well, the the website, HeartScrabble. HeartScrabbleRanch.com. HeartScrabbleRanch.com. Check it out. It's a it's a, it's a beautiful place. I was especially excited that you had pigs out there. Oh yeah, yeah. So. I'm going home tonight, and I'm, I've got eight pork bellies to smoke. <laughs> I'm gonna. I think I'm gonna do six as bacon and two porquetas. And the, these were ones that you raised. They were with us about a week ago. <laughs> <laughs> They're still with us. <laughs> They're still with. They're gonna be with us. Again. Yeah. <laughs> Oh, that's great. Well, thanks, Peter, for jumping on this week and this month and really appreciate all your insight, all the encouragement you've always been to me, just um, 
with education kinds of things as well as huge a lot of fun but i appreciate you uh, taking the time here so. it's been a pleasure thank you mm-hmm.